few chapters that we've been studying over the last few months. In Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem uh, to the cheering crowds. They're shouting, Son of David, King of Israel. I mean, the fullness of his ministry is now coming to Jerusalem. And in 22, the political leaders kind of um, work at undermining the favor of Jesus. They're testing Jesus. They're trying Jesus. And Jesus continues to best them with his arguments and the truth that he brings to bear. And then in 23, Jesus condemns, really pronounces a judgment on the Pharisees because they have failed to lead the people to see him as the Messiah. And then in 24, Jesus takes the bold step to pronounce that judgment will fall on Jerusalem and on the temple itself. And then in 25, Jesus begins to proclaim himself that he's bringing a kingdom in glory and power. I mean, you can just feel the emotion where Jesus is beginning to take charge. It looks like Jesus is going to step onto the scene now and bring an end to everything and establish himself. And then in 26, to the unsuspecting reader, it takes a massive shift. It begins with that woman breaking that expensive jar of perfume. Now this isn't so surprising if she were going to if she was going to anoint him for his coronation, but she anoints him for his humiliation and his burial. And then followed by Judas and this dark betrayal. You're going to see the story kind of narrowed down now to Judas and to Jesus. And out of this exchange, Jesus is going to give us a new meal, a new meal that's going to remind us of this new covenant that he is going to make with us in his own death. So we want to look at Judas for a minute, because in Judas there is a warning for every single person here. We want to hear the warning, and we want to heed the warning. And then we're going to look at Jesus, and Jesus is going to display, display truth to us that I think will provide great hope. He's going to provide that we're going to see a willingness to enter death. We're going to see a sovereignty over death. And we're going to see that he inaugurates a new covenant in his death. So let's look first at Judas here, if you will. You know, he kind of comes on the, he comes to the fore in this scripture. And I think you'd agree with me if you remember the sermon regarding the woman anointing Jesus. You can't find really any starker contrast. Right? You have the woman, deep devotion, voluntary sacrifice breaks this oil to anoint Jesus. You see she has massive loyalty to Jesus. And she's held in contrast with the conniving, self-centered, underhanded, disloyal friend. Now, many of you know this story well. You're not surprised by it, that it was Judas who went to these chief priests and these leaders. That doesn't surprise you. But, but let me challenge that and say, you should have been surprised. We should all be surprised. He was a companion of Jesus, a close, intimate companion for years. He was an eyewitness to a tremendous number of miracles. He was hearing the greatest preacher ever. He watched a life perfectly lived, and he betrayed him. He turned. Now... What we do not know fully, though, is why. Why would Judas betray him? 
What would prompt it? Well, you know, there's many reasons given at the end. We don't know for sure, but one of the reasons could be maybe he was just, maybe he was felt slighted. You know, when the disciples criticized the woman for wasting that oil on Jesus and Jesus rebuked the disciples, maybe he felt slighted. Uh, maybe he felt disappointed that Jesus wasn't the Messiah to fix all the problems that were still remaining. Maybe he disagreed with Jesus theologically or politically. Matthew seems to imply, at least in verse 15, that there was a degree of greed or avarice. You know, because it was Judas who went to them and said, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? So there seems to be some sort of desire that he had, and they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's hard to translate their currency into our currency, given the time. We do know that it was probably close to a month's worth of wages, if that gives us a little better marker. We also know from Exodus 21 that it was the price that you would have to pay if your ox inadvertently gored one of your slaves. So they paid him the price of a slave, basically. And so with cash in hand, Judas goes and looks for an opportunity. Now, I now, just want to stop here for a minute looking at Judas at a high level. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, uh, it is a reminder of the depravity of man. That we can act in hate and that we can hate remarkably well. I mean, you read the papers. I mean, the papers are filled with atrocities that continue to cause you to say, I can't believe somebody would do that. I can't believe somebody would do that. We don't need ISIS as an example for savagery. I mean, we've had it in every generation. I mean, you don't even have to be a student of history to see it repeat itself in terms of the the Hitlers and the Stalins. That's only within the last hundred years. I mean, savagery is just part of who we are. To think that education or opportunities are going to correct the fundamental flaw in humanity apart from God is just foolish. Judas is a primary example of the fundamental brokenness of men. Now, we in America have been given great opportunity, or Western culture, I should say, have been given great opportunities at education, affluence, comfort, convenience, and yet we still struggle all the way up the halls of power. We struggle with being liars, gluttons, slanderers, adulterers, idolaters. We struggle with all these things. I think what it, what it begs for us to ask is, can we ever change? I mean, doesn't it seem to beg that we need help, that we can't do it on our own? I mean, it seems to beg that we need someone like us that understands, but we need someone dissimilar and different from us, someone divine, someone from God to rescue us. See, this is really calling for us to see our massive need for the gospel. We can't do it. How many more generations, how many more years of history have to be recorded for us to understand that, no, we are savage. We can be, every one of us. But at a lower level, this isn't just outside the walls of the church. Look at Judas for a minute with me. As one author said, he saw things that Abraham and Moses didn't see. He heard things that Noah, Noah didn't see. I mean, can you the proximity that he had to God, to the Son of God, the instruction that he had, the teaching that he had, the eyewitnessing that he got, 
And he gets twisted, even in the midst of religion. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican pastor in the 19th century in England, said, great privileges do not make a heart right with God. There's a warning for us here with Judas. And the warning is simply this, that that because we have proximity to the Scriptures, we come to a church, we worship with other Christian friends, that doesn't mean that our hearts have been regenerated, that we have been truly converted. It it causes us to, to stop and say, you know, we ought to have a reverent fear. So how do we respond to this? How do you and I respond to what I've just said? In this text, well, number one, there would be a reverent fear we ought to have. A reverent fear, and what I mean by that is this, that we would examine ourselves to to confirm that, yes, a transformation has taken place in my heart. That just because I have certain orthodox beliefs, that I want to know that my heart has been changed toward God. And that takes us to examine ourselves. But before we examine ourselves, I want to encourage you that we ought to, as one author said, suspect ourselves. That when I tend to examine myself, I can very quickly give myself passing marks. I, I, have, I have a very easy time justifying my sinful responses to people. I can explain myself out of being guilty quite well and quite easily. And I believe you can too. And so we want to suspect, even before we examine ourselves, suspect the fact that we may come to our self-examination already grading on the curve. And this is why we need the church. This is why we need friends. This is why we need to be in care groups, why we need to be connected with people in Bible study, so that people can weigh in with us, that we can ask somebody, what, what presence of God's Spirit do you see in my life? Uh, this would do so much to create community as well as help us understand where we are with God. What do you see in me that would evidence God's Spirit? Is there there a, a move towards holiness? Is there a growing love for God? Is there a willingness to sacrifice? Is there is there quick repentance when sin? What is there that you see in me? This is a question that we ought to be asking our friends and our spouses. But not just reverent fear, I'd say another response would be a joyful humility. And what I mean by a humility is if you examine yourselves and see that God's grace is within you, transforming you, then rejoice over that. That is not from you. Look at Judas. Nobody had a better corner than he did, and he missed it. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, I mean, if you know and love him and want to serve him, repenting of your sins, then rejoice in great humility because this, is, this has been given to you. Grace is a gift. It's not by works. Otherwise, you could boast. But it's a gift that if you believe these things about Jesus Christ, be thankful, be humbled by that. Not just that. Utilize your privileges. Again, you see the privileges he has that he did not utilize. Many of you have great privileges. We have, of course, the word being broken well at Sunday school, 
preaching Wednesday nights, very helpful, the care groups? Are you utilizing those? Are you, are, you, are you engaging in those means of grace to cultivate in you greater and greater love for God? I mean, to just pass by all the opportunities of growth and movements in holiness will not serve you well. And then last, I would say, too, in terms of responding just to Judas as a warning, would be the call for perseverance. He did not persevere. He was distracted. Maybe money was his thing. Uh, maybe, maybe it was Jesus didn't line up like he thought Jesus should line up. Jesus didn't do what he should have done. Maybe you've even experienced that. You've prayed and he didn't answer your prayer. And you kind of hold a little bit of, you know, you hold him in a certain degree of contempt. Or, or maybe it's, it, you don't agree with everything Jesus says. That Jesus, his theology, his understanding of life doesn't accord with yours. Jesus is a little too serious for you. Maybe you disagree with him. These things can distract us. And what happens is we don't go off rail immediately. It's this kind of slow, incremental departing from the path. But in the end, it's the same. You didn't persevere. There's a warning for us here. I, I pray you'd heed this warning. As those of you who confess Christ, I, I pray that you would heed these warnings. They're given to us because he loves us. Again, you don't warn your enemies, right? You warn those you love because you want them to heed the warning. Okay, so that's Judas. Let's look at Jesus just for a minute. So you have Jesus, and, and, and it looks at this point like all the cards are kind of in Judas's hands, right? He's the one in control. He's looking for the opportune time. He has the connection with the leadership. He's got the money in his hand. It looks like he's kind of driving the boat. But then we look at Jesus, and we kind of find out that's not the case. Jesus seems to still be in charge, even though he's walking towards what will be his own death. You see first that Jesus is willing to die, that Jesus is willing to enter death. That's the first facet of Jesus I want to open to you. Jesus is willing to die. And you see this in 17 and 19 as he makes preparation for the, for the Passover. Remember, the Passover was that celebration that Israel would, would uh, celebrate every year. It was a recognition that God delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery. It was God's greatest redemptive act recorded in the Old Testament. The scriptures always refer to it. This is evidence that God is a gracious God because he saved us. And it was an act that was celebrated with a meal. And Jesus now is saying, he's, do you notice? He commanded them to go and prepare for the Passover. He knows, and we saw this a few weeks back, that the Passover is really pointing to Jesus. I mean, Jesus spoke himself. He's that Passover lamb. That the Passover, this act of deliverance, the exodus out of slavery, Jesus is leading a second exodus, not out of slavery to men, but out of slavery to sin. Jesus is leading a second exodus, but he's going to be the one that leads it, and he's going to be the Passover lamb. And so he commands them. And do you notice, it doesn't say in our Gospel of Matthew, but in the other Gospels, he just sent a few disciples and he said, you're going to find a man in town. Now, that would be not really a major identifying mark. Um, but, but in the other Gospels, he says, it's a man carrying water. Of course, in this day, women carried water. So he would be quickly identifiable. And now many of us stop here and we get a little caught up and say, well, did Jesus do that by divine omniscience? Or did he do it because he made the plan with the guy last week? 
Well, you know what? I'm not sure that's the question Matthew's really trying to answer here. I think he's trying to show us that Jesus is in command. He's saying, you go, you get that man, you make that room. We're going to have a Passover. This is the last Passover because I'm going to be dying. And you see this in his words because he tells the disciples to tell the man that the master says, my time is at hand. That's an expression. I'm going to die. Jesus knows he's going to die. He's laying down his life. He is willingly laying it down. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we read, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. I just want to stop here for a minute in the sense that when you think about that, there is something fundamental to us as humans that we fight to live. We fight to live. You see people struggle to live, not just when they're dying of some sickness, but even if they're caught in a dangerous place. I mean, if you ever see a person who thinks they're drowning, they don't go at it halfway. I mean, they are struggling to live, and yet Jesus is laying down his life for us. What does that make you think of? What, what is the first visceral reaction within you? Is it, is it joy? Is it worship? Is it a love for him? Is it an increased desire to sacrifice yourself for the kingdom? Is it revealed in a boldness to share about the grace of God in your life with others? What comes up in you when you hear that he came to lay down his life for you, to enter death for you? If nothing comes up, or if very little comes up, then, then I, would, I would, and that concerns you, that's good that it concerns you. That's a mark of God's grace already at work within you. Ask him for greater affections. Ask him for a greater love for the one who died for you. I mean, ask God for that. He says you have not because you ask not. So ask. But not only do we see his willingness to enter death, we see his sovereignty over death. And you see this in 20 to 25. When he begins, he gathers around with his disciples. It's as they were eating. That's the marker that he gives us. As they were eating, he says, one of you will betray me. Now Jesus says this because he wants everybody to know he already knows what's going on. Before the betrayer can act, I have already identified him. And he says he's the one that dips his hand in the bowl with me. Now, frankly, friends, that could implicate all of them because that's the way they ate. The food was in the bowl. You dip your bread in and you ate. It could have been all of them. And that's why they say, is it I? Now, in the Greek, it isn't really, is it I? It should probably be phrased, it's not me. It's in the negative. Surely not I. In other words, expecting, no, no, no. But Jesus doesn't answer their questions. Do you notice that? He goes right to making this assertion, this bold assertion. He says, the Son of Man will go as it's written. In other words, Jesus isn't threatened. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. He's not disappointed. He's not, I can't believe that he would turn his back on. There's none of that in the Lord. It's this confident assertion. He will go as it's written. That's how he's going to go. Uh, there may be a betrayer, and he may be a secondary agent in this process. Son of man's going to go because God's decreed it that way. And then Judas comes and says, surely not I. And Jesus says, you've said so. 
In other words, he doesn't say, no, it's not you, Judas. He knows it's Judas. And he's letting Judas know he knows it's Judas. Now, at this point, Jesus could have prevented it. Didn't he stop storms? Didn't he calm seas? Didn't he give sight to blind? Didn't he give hearing to the deaf? Didn't he raise the dead? He could have stopped it. Nobody's taking his life. You know that. He's giving it. Nobody killed Jesus. He's laying down his life. It says in John 10 that I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is clearly Jesus' show here. This is not any intrigue. There's no political. There's no religious military intrigue. He has come for this very purpose, to lay down his life. Now, when you think about his sovereignty over death, you see that it's part of God's plan, that God has decreed the Son would die for our salvation. Now, if you're Christian or not Christian, Jesus, this was not a secondary move to save a people who rebelled in the sense of God's trying to change gears. His plan was this way, now it's this way. God had always ordained that the Son would die. God had decreed it for our salvation. There is no other way. It was all the way back. We see the first glimpse of this decree in Genesis chapter 3, when he said that the woman would have a seed, and the seed would crush the head of the serpent. We see just a, a little glimpse of it then. But what I want you to see about the sovereignty of God in this death is it doesn't absolve the rejection and the betrayal of Judas. He says that the Son of Man will go as it's written, as God has written it into his own script. But woe to the man who betrays him. There's culpability being born in the midst of divine decree. Do you see that? But woe to him who betrays him. The Judas bears a culpability. You kind of say, well, hold on, that doesn't seem really fair. If God said it's going to happen and Judas did it, then how can Judas be held accountable if God decreed it? Well, because Judas wanted it. Judas assented to it. Judas's will is involved in God's sovereign decree. It's a mystery. They coexist together. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. They both exist. I cannot unravel it perfectly for you, but I see them together in Scripture, and I accept them both. That Judas assented to this divine plan, and therefore he is culpable. You see as well in his sovereign death the poor plight of the one who rejects. The one who rejects. You notice he says, It would have been better if he had never been born. Now that's not just given to Judas because he's a betrayer. It's given to Judas because he has rejected the Messiah. Now that ended up in him betraying the Messiah, but it was preceded by he rejected the Messiah. This is a warning to all of us, particularly to the non-Christian here, that to reject Jesus Christ and his gospel Jesus says it's better if you were not born. I mean, can you believe that statement? It's better if you were not born. To reject the gospel and to reject the grace that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. All of us have a responsibility. 
And we see divine decree exist in the context of human responsibility. This is why we call for people to choose Christ. We call for people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a legitimate call for you to exercise that volition, I want to follow Christ. And even now, to those who are not Christian here, I would call you to believe on the Lord Christ. He says, it would be better to not be born, to reject the offer of what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. That you would repent of your sins, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus, that he's the king, the savior of the world, the bearer of sins, the restorer of all people to God. That he alone and his name alone is the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's for all of us. I speak especially to the one who has not yet believed. G.C. Rao, let me quote him one more time. He says this, This text teaches plainly that it is better to never live at all than to live without faith, to die without grace. To die in this state is to be ruined forevermore. It's a fall from which there is no rising. He said, let's grasp this truth firmly, not let it go. There are always people who dislike the reality and eternity of hell. We live in a day, now this is 150 years ago when he said this. We live in a day, so the day has been very long. We live in a day when a morbid charity induces many to exaggerate God's mercy at the expense of his justice. And when false teachers are, do, are daring to talk of a love of God lower even than hell. Let us resist such teaching with holy jealousy and abide by the doctrine of Scripture. Let us not be ashamed to walk in the old paths and to believe that there is an eternal God, an eternal heaven, and an eternal hell. So we see when we're looking at Jesus, we see that he came willing to enter death. We see that he was sovereign in his death. But then look, we see that in his death he inaugurates a new covenant. Look with me back at 26 to 29. And this is the, as you know, this is what's often spoken of when we celebrate the Lord's table. Remember, they're celebrating Passover, and Passover had certain symbols. It had bread, and it had wine, and it had uh, bitter herbs, and all these things represented what God was doing in the Passover. Well, now Jesus is going to infuse a newer, a deeper meaning. He's going to add words to this Passover. So he's taking the Passover, that is the origin of our Lord's table. He's going to take the Passover, but he's going to elevate it, and he's going to cause it to bloom. He's going to cause it to mean so much more as it points to him. And notice what he says. In 26, he says to the disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, in the old Passover celebration, they would look at the broken bread as a reminder that their bodies were broken under the weight of slavery and harshness in Egypt. But now Jesus takes that, and he said, it's my body that will be broken under the weight of God's judgment and justice. For you. Then in my death, my body will be broken. For you. There's a clear note of substitution here that he will bear in his body all that we ought to have borne. Now, when he says, This is my body, I want to deal with this. You know, I came from a Roman Catholic background, many of you had. Is this literal? Is he saying that when you take the bread, it's actually his body? 
Or is it more figurative? Is it more representational of his body? And I, would, I think it's easier than sometimes we think. I would say it's representational. And two reasons why. Number one, if you were there at the scene and he's holding the bread and his body is in front of them and he's holding the bread and he says, this is my body. It would be a large leap for them to think well, that bread, which looks very distinct and different than his body, would be actually his own flesh and blood. It would be a hard leap to make. But also, you know, throughout the ministry of Jesus, he spoke of himself in other representational terms. He said, I am the door. Now, he's not saying that he's made of wood, but that he is an entrance into the kingdom. He said, I am the good shepherd. We know he wasn't at all. He was, in fact, a carpenter. But he is leading the people of God. He says, I am the bread of heaven. Well, we know that he's not oats or barley, but, but he's the sustenance from heaven coming from God. So, so we see these other representations. I'm the light of the world. He's not the sun, but he brings clarity and illumination to all people over all things. So I would say that that at least the simplest reading of the text would be that he's using the bread as a form of representation and not as a form of identification. But look what he does with the cup. Now this, is, this gets more interesting in some respects. He says he took the cup when he had given thanks, at probably the third cup, there were four cups at a normal Passover celebration. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's interesting how he changes this, because in a normal Passover celebration, when they would look at the cup with wine, they would have been reminded that God made a covenant with them to be their God, and that they would be his people. The covenant that they would have been remembering, though, isn't necessarily the Passover lamb being slaughtered, but in Exodus 24, you don't have to go there, but I encourage you to read the first half of that chapter. In Exodus 24, there's this unique scene where Moses, he's led the people out, right? The lamb has been slain, Exodus has taken place. They're now in the wilderness. And so what Moses does is they sacrifice an animal, and they take the blood of the animal, and he sprinkles it on the altar, and then he takes the blood of the animal and he sprinkles it upon the people. The altar is representational of God. And the blood of the sacrificed animal is uniting God with the people. The reason that an animal was slain was because people were sinful. And Moses had already told them without the shedding of blood in Leviticus 17.11, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the animal bore the sins of the people, so that God and the people could come together again. But notice what Jesus, so when they looked at the cup, they would think about that, the sprinkling of blood on the altar and the people uniting the two together. But now what happens? Jesus says this, he says, for this is my blood of the covenant. So Jesus is the sacrifice that was slain. That in his blood, there's going to be the reuniting of God and men and women. That, that the 
that the coming together of a people under God to be his people forever will be born by the Son of God who sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus now fulfills that, Exodus 24, in linking us to God again. It's his blood that we see that unites us to God. He's the atoning sacrifice. The innocent one bears the guilt of the sinner so that the sinner may now be the innocent one to be with God. This is what the meal represents. This Jesus, he's, he's leading a new exodus, forming a new people through his blood to be with God forever. And this covenant that he's established is now not the blood of an animal that would have to be sacrificed every year because the animals could never take away the sins, but the Son of God. This covenant's eternal, it's permanent, forever. It, it, it's interesting when you think about all this is symbolized by food, but it really shouldn't surprise us because, you know, back in Genesis 3, what broke relationship with God was food. They ate the food. They shouldn't have eaten the fruit. It was food that was involved in the falling away of men turning against God, no longer seeing God face to face. And now it's food again. Food is reuniting us to God. We now can look at the face of God in Christ and live because of food. The food, the bread, the bread, and the wine, the table, has now brought us back to God. It's really a profound meal, and, and this meal uh, reminds us of this covenant. So when we do celebrate communion in a couple of weeks, you know, communion is, is a gift of God to us. You know, symbols are helpful for us. Um, you know, think about the symbols God gives to us. He gives us the rainbow, right? A promise to God that he'll never flood us. He gave the Israelites circumcision. That This is what separated them from the rest of creation. Or you see the, the symbolism of the Passover. You know, it, it symbolized God's redemptive act. But now he's given us the bread and the wine. They're, they're symbols. Why? Because we forget. We forget things. We are the, the, the na- you know, we just forget so much. I've forgotten things that I wish I'd never forgotten. My wife's birthday, one time, that's all. It's true. But we do forget. And God is gracious He's gracious to give us these reminders so that we don't forget. That's why we celebrate it every month. So when you see the table, it looks backward at the sacrifice that Jesus did do historically, written in time, inaugurating a new covenant, bringing the forgiveness of sins. But there's also the present-day blessing of the table. It wasn't just a historical act. There's present-day. When you take of the bread and you dip it in the cup, you are participating in the continuing effects of his death. There are continuing benefits of his death that he gives to us this grace to sustain us. The table's for us as we're weak. We need the reminder, I've been forgiven. Do you know how good that is to know that we've been forgiven? Do you know that feeling? Can you rest, those of you who have come by faith to Jesus Christ, do you know the peace that comes or that is yours when you consider that he has forgiven every sin that you've committed? 
both the things that you have done and the things that you should have done but you did not do. And you have no way to go back and undo those things that you did or do those things you didn't do. And, and yet, this eternal covenant is a reminder you've been forgiven. Friends, I want you to feel the joy of the forgiveness that he intends for us to have. That's why he has built into the life of the church this monthly reminder, this regular reminder, you are forgiven. Live in light of the grace that he has already given you. Don't drag the corpses of your sins behind you as if there's some value in self-atonement when he has made full atonement. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. The table's for weak people. It's for me. It's for you. We need this reminder. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do not miss the joy of that. He intends that to buoy us to himself. But the table also reminds us to look forward. You notice in 29, there's this future aspect. He says, I will not drink of the, of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. Do you know what he's saying here? You know, in the Old Testament, the Passover was to be celebrated, reminding them that it would be fulfilled when they finally enter the promised land. Well, this table is going to be fulfilled by another meal. There seems to be another meal, this, this banquet that we're going to celebrate with him, this time of rejoicing in the completion of all things. In fact, it's even given word in the book of Isaiah, if you can believe it. In Isaiah 25, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. In other words, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. God has spoken. He's going to prepare a feast. So the table... It is like our sustenance, if you will. It's like, it's like to keep giving us the energy to live faithfully in this life until we celebrate it anew with him. Can you imagine the Lord has denied himself aged wine until we are there with him? He's denying himself part of his own creation. I bet he's excited to share it with us as we ought to be with him. So we're a people always looking forward. Our hope is secure in what has been done, in what is being done, and what will be done. We have a, we have a tremendous Savior, a tremendous Savior who would be willing to enter death even as he exercises his sovereignty over death and he inaugurates a new and eternal, a glorious covenant for us in his death. So let's take a few minutes and, and, and think about, we've heard warnings regarding Judas. There are warnings here. People, I'm calling you to a reverent fear, a joyful humility, to utilize the privileges you have, people to persevere, and at the same time, I'm saying, let's reflect on Jesus. 
that he was willing to enter death, that he was sovereign over his death, and that he has inaugurated a new covenant. And if you're not a Christian here, I would ask you to consider these things. What hope is there for you in this life? You are one call away from your whole life changing. You're one event away from your whole life being upended, everything being twisted and transformed in horrible ways. What hope is there? I would ask you to consider Jesus Christ. If you have questions about the gospel, we would love to speak with you about that. And after a few minutes, an elder will close us in prayer. Thank you.